with Pixel Therapy, the video game podcast where we look at the games we play through the lens of the player, where what you play is just as important as how you play it, and where emotional intelligence is a critical stat. I'm your co-host, Jamie, pronouns she, her. And I'm your co-host, Spencer, pronouns they, them. And this is Pixel Therapy. We're going to start a little bit differently (laughs) this time because we have some big news, uh, which is that we're officially streamers now. That's right. Real ass content creators (laughs) over here at Pixel Therapy Pod. Um, We are streaming this right now live to an audience of myself. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And we're going to be doing this now with our episodes moving forward. Um, So if you right now we're streaming on YouTube. That may change, uh, expand uh, to Twitch and other platforms. We are figuring this out as we go um, and practicing. And maybe it's going to be bad for a while. Maybe it'll be good. (laughs) I don't know. But if you want to go on this journey with us uh, right now, you can catch us on YouTube. Um, So if you go go to YouTube, pull up Pixel Therapy Pod and uh, subscribe to our channel and click the bell icon to get notifications. You'll get notified when we go live and stuff like that if you want to tune into it. And um, if you don't want to watch us live, uh, that's okay. We You can also watch the recordings on YouTube if you prefer to get the content that way. And yeah, that's going to be the thing that we're doing now. Um, we and will, we'll still be on Apple Podcasts and all that. <laughs> yes, we'll still still going to be a podcast and still primarily a podcast uh, product for your ears. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. So you know, we're not we're not fully going all the way into video content, but just trying to branch out a little bit. Um, and we'll we've got to figure out exactly how we're going to communicate the stream times and stuff like that. Right now, we've been sharing it with our Patreon audience, but still getting our feet under us. So. Um, yeah, as we figure this out, we'll start posting it on social media, letting folks know when to expect us. Um, and we'll try to get it set up so that, you know, it tells you on YouTube too, when we're planning to go live next and yeah, whole brave new world out here. Mm -hmm. Um, but as part of this, we're also going to try streaming some video games, uh, (laughs) starting with, uh, some spooky season stuff. I'm very excited. Uh, October is here. It's October 1st. Welcome. Uh, and that means that we're coming up on Alan Wake season, Alan Wake two coming out (laughs) at the end of the month. And Spencer has never played Alan Wake one and the first Alan Wake. And I really wanted to replay it, but why should I replay it? If I can (laughs) vicariously through Spencer playing it. Um, so for our first attempt at streaming video games, we decided to go ahead and try streaming Alan Wake. So Spencer's going to play, I'm going to commentate and, uh, be scared with, them and hold their hand through it and we're gonna try to do that um our first two planned streams for alan wake uh if you want to get out your journals are gonna be (laughs) thursday october 12th from 7 to 9 p.m eastern time and then again sunday october 15th from 4 to 6 p.m eastern time and then we'll just communicate as we go from there alan wake's not a super long game it's kind of like six to ten hours so um we'll see how many sessions it takes but Hell so yeah. knowing me, it'll be 10 to 12 hours. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. We'll see how long it takes. Uh, but yeah, we'd love to get, get through it and try streaming a game. And I don't know. This is us now. So Hell yeah, yeah, I'm excited here. I'm excited and nervous. Uh, Same. Kind of my normal state. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, so that's us right now. Um, To make space for the streaming, uh, we're moving to a monthly podcast release. So every four weeks instead of every three weeks. Um, So we'll keep you all posted on that if that changes. But you may notice a slightly lower frequency of podcast releases. And that's just to make space for us to do some of the game 
stream stuff that we want to play around with. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, we'll see as we get more comfortable with it and figure out more of a rhythm, we may go back to a different rhythm with the podcast. But this is what we're doing for right now. So anyway, thank you all for yeah, <laughs> your patience you. and understanding as we test these new things out and get to have fun with it. And we, you know, wouldn't be trying any of this uh, without feeling like we had some core support from our fan base. So thank mm-hmm. you for listening to us. We love you. We do. We do. <laughs> um, so now let's move into how we usually start our podcast, which is our Patreon shout outs. Our special thank you to everyone who subscribed at our Patreon name in the credits tier. Uh, and these are for the month of August. So that's a very big thank you to Genevieve, Lindsay, or I'm sorry. These are for the month of September. That's my mistake. They are actually for September. I just (laughs) am silly. I don't know what month it is because early yesterday it was September and now it's October. These are for September. It's a big thank you to Genevieve, Lindsay, Pim Hatai, Adi Yinka, CD Mess, Ava, Sammy, and Alexis. Thank you all so much for your support in September. Remember, if you want to get your name in the credits, folks, you can hop on over to patreon.com slash pixel therapy pod where you can subscribe for as little as $2 a month to get access to a monthly bonus series that's exclusive to Patreon. And we are starting to stream those episodes too. Still trying to figure out how to get that uh, link out to everyone in advance so they can join the streams, but we're working on it. Um, But there's video content for those episodes as well. And uh, we have a Patreon backlog that goes all the way back to November 2020. So if you're a new subscriber, you're going to get access to a lot of Spencer and I Uh chit-chatting. And our Patreon bonus episode for September we reviewed what's one of my favorite games of 2023 now, I think, wow. uh, which, which was the Cosmic Wheel Sisterhood. Yes. I really so like that game. Same. Um, yeah, we, we were very high on it and, uh, and it's a great conversation. So uh, if you're interested, totally. go over there to patreon.com slash pixel therapy pod, kick us the $2 and, and you can check that out. Um, if you already subscribe or if you're just looking for a way to show your support for us for free, uh, you can consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, every review there does really matter for podcasts, especially smaller podcasts like us. And, uh, you know, you can tune into the live streams. You can watch the videos, like the videos on YouTube, follow us on social media. But know that no matter how you choose to engage with us, we do appreciate you all just for being here and listening. That's great, too. Yes. Love a download. Love, love a download. Yes. <laughs> all right. It's time to get cozy. Pull up an armchair. Feel free to lie down on the couch. Let's talk about our feelings. Spencer, how the hell are you today? (laughs) Jamie, I'm great. Yeah. I'm so good right now. Yeah. Why is that? (laughs) (laughs) I, this morning, um, I woke up at 5 a.m. Bright and early. Dark and early. Got my car. Typical Sunday morning. <laughs> and I drove two and a half hours to Connecticut mm. and picked up a little doggy. Yay! And, <laughs> uh, his name right now is Dove, um, but that will likely change. Um, <laughs> Not married to Dove. But it has been a multi-week, multi-interview multi-stage um process these rescuers um, are not messing around honestly respect like yep. dang they are really dedicated to getting these dogs some good ass homes but east coast canine rescue shout out thanks Woo-hoo. thanks for finally bequeathing a dog upon us um <laughs> 
But it's been, yeah, about like five weeks at this point that are six weeks that we've been uh, moving from the phase of we think we're ready to open our hearts to a new puppy. Um, uh, we found one on Pet Finder. Great resource. Yep. Um, easy way to get your heart broken depending <laughs> on yeah. the dog um, or cat or animal. But yeah, we made it through the gauntlet. Um, we finally connected with a foster, went out to meet him. He hopped right in our car and now he's downstairs. Um, yeah. yeah, it's it's all happening. So, That's so exciting. Um, yeah, it was um it's it's yeah, we're we're super excited. Um, <laughs> don't know too much about him yet, but I'm gonna make sure that he is a gamer and of course. Um, I think he will love to watch Alan Wake alongside us, um, <laughs> and provide much needed emotional support. So Can't wait for that. he is, has a very important job ahead of him. <laughs> um, I'm sure my husband is downstairs playing Baldur's Gate three with him right now. So <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're super stoked. And, um, um, I know I meant I've mentioned on the podcast um, our dog Odin uh, passed away earlier this year, um, and so yeah, I think it's been a journey getting to the point where we're ready to open our our hearts in our home again. Um, but I'm feeling really good, and I feel like Odin is up there wagging his tail in solidarity. <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah. So I'm great. Like honestly, <laughs> how are you? <laughs> I mean. It's weird to say maybe, but I'm like really happy for you and, uh, and your partner. You. Like, That's not weird. <laughs> now, I mean, you know, my partner and I just felt so bad for y'all with uh, Odin's passing. And, yeah, you know, you guys have been through it and really excited to see you ready to bring another dog into your lives. And he's Thanks, a big buddy. cutie. And I was more than happy to respond to the intense message from the rescue organization. <laughs> yeah. Like you have 24 hours or we're going to cancel their application. I was like, yeah. Oh my God. The stakes are high. <laughs> the stakes were very high, but uh, I, yeah, I felt fully confident being like, yes, absolutely. These folks should have another dog. They were so great. Uh, Thanks, with their last one and they're going to be great <laughs> with the next one and yeah I don't know just wishing you both all the best and hugs and I can't wait to meet the little guy thanks uh, yeah and let him meet my two monsters <laughs> <laughs> they're gonna be fast friends I'm manifesting yeah. it yeah hell yeah um but yeah, other than that, I'm doing pretty good. You know, uh, it's the first of October. It's a great time. This is my season. Um, yes. Yesterday it was like 60 degrees and rainy, so I was thriving. Today it's like mm -hmm. 70 and sunny, and I'm a little like, mm, all right, mm, calm dial down. It back, yeah. Dial it back a little <laughs> bit, just a little bit. Um, we're getting Mr. Peepers set up this year. Great. That is our 12 foot tall Home Depot skeleton. Mm -hmm. um, he had a little bit Aptly of an accident. He, he had a tragic year last year. Uh, oh, he, no. We got him like literally three days before Halloween, like he came in the mail. And so we were not able to set him up in time for Halloween display, but we set him up and just let him hang out in the backyard. And that was fun. <laughs> and then a very strong windstorm blew him over and broke his head oh! in his ribs oh, <laughs> before he was ever to able to make his official Halloween debut. Um, but my partner has been working on him, uh, toiling over him. His, the whole carcass <laughs> is just piled up in our basement. Oh, he's like st stitching ribs back. 
like together. Frankenstein's and, lab down yeah, there. Yeah, like reconnecting the eyeballs and oh, good uh, to the wiring <laughs> and all of that. And yeah, but he said he's got him almost ready and he's going to go up this week and we're going to officially have a Home Depot skeleton in our front yard and I'm Love very excited about you. that. Yes. Um, so that's pretty cool. Um, and then I tried to make pancakes this morning. Oh. Are you very good at making pancakes, Spencer? <sighs> I'm more of a waffle maker. Yeah, okay. A French but, toast is my go-to. Oh, yeah. I think Love I make French a pretty toast. mean French toast. Pancakes uh, elude me. What <laughs> like, I don't know. They're just the batter's never right. It's never quite mm. right. It's either too, it's too thick or it's too thin. And then mm-hmm. I'm spreading it and it's like sticking everywhere. And yeah. I think I just don't like batter. I don't like working mm-hmm. with doughy things. They stress me out. Yeah. It's unpredictable. Uh, you know, it's a science, but it's not. There's an art to it and I just want it to work and then when it doesn't work I get really frustrated I I feel like the dough can feel my anxiety about working with it It's like it's like working with certain animals. They're like, yeah, oh, they can tell if you're afraid. It it's can like the dough, fear. the dough can yeah. smell my fear. And it's like, nope, I'm yeah. not, not going to be cooperating today. So <laughs> the pancakes were fine. I'm sure I'm overthinking it, but they stress me out. I don't know. I just wish yeah. it was easier. Pancake so. batter is a power bottom. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, uh, let's go ahead and talk about some video games. Uh, we have just like a real casual light topic for everyone today. Uh, we're totally. going to be just dissecting two of the biggest games of the year. Um, NBD. NBD. I don't know. We, we Our last public episode, we did two games at a time. And it went so well um, with those two like five to ten hour visual novels yeah. that we did yeah. that we thought, why not? Why not for our next episode? Do Starfield and Baldur's Gate 3, two games that are like minimum <laughs> 30, maybe 50 hours to like 150 hours. Oh, God. Two of the biggest open worlds that we've had in gaming. <clears throat> Let's do that. Sure. Let's do both of those in one episode. <laughs> Casual. Um, it's so- hurting my feelings that the recommended playthrough for Baldur's Gate is like. 30 hours because I'm like 120 hours in and I'm not even finished it yet. <laughs> well, it's, uh, So how long to beat on these games? Uh, and then I'll talk a bit about what these games are in, in case uh, yeah. in case you're not in the know. So Baldur's Gate 3, the how long to beat is uh, people are saying about 50 and a half hours to get through the main campaign, 138 hours uh, on average to complete everything in the game. Okay. But I mean, obviously, these are just average numbers based on who actually submits to the How Long to Beat website. And then for Starfield, apparently you can get through the main campaign in 20 and a half hours. I maybe I guess if you were pretty much just yeah, if you were just like straight mainlining the campaign, Mm. you could do it. I guess I can see that. Um, But 140 to do everything in the game. Even that I think that both of these games are the kind that you could easily sync more than that into especially starfield which has a new game plus and the game kind of never ends you can keep Mm. going with it over and over again um so yeah these are two big ass games big big game releases um let's so let's break them down a little bit um i'm gonna start with baldur's gate uh that is a so it's baldur's gate 3 actually it's a story rich party-based rpg set in the universe of dungeons and dragons uh where your choices shape a tale of fellowship and betrayal survival and sacrifice and the lure of absolute power Mm -hmm. uh the game features point and click mechanics and turn-based combat it's developed by larian studios who are probably best known for the divinity original sin series and it was released on pc in august followed by the playstation 5 release at the beginning of september 
It's quickly become one of the biggest game releases of the year. It hit 875,000 concurrent players on Steam within its second week of release and sold two and a half million copies even before it was officially released um, while it was in Steam early access. Um, So that's a big number to sell (laughs) while in Steam early access. Yeah. Uh, The game currently sits at a 96% positive critic rating on Open Critic, but I believe the first week it came out, it hit 99% for a little while. So it was like one of the best reviewed games ever. Uh, and if you've been on social media at all over the last two months, you've probably seen at least one person in the timeline being horny about it. (laughs) (laughs) The the game has like very, uh, pro-sexual like characters there's a lot of like pro-sexual uh, I don't know, yeah. they're like very they're very sexual they come on to you very strongly and yeah pro-sexual is not the word i was looking for but i'm gonna i'm gonna lean into that uh the game has like has romances in it and that's been a huge part of it is deciding which companion you're gonna romance and they all flirt with you a lot so it's mm-hmm. horny horny little game um it's interesting to note that the previous Baldur's Gate games were actually not developed by Larian, um, and that Larian actually pitched mm. Wizards of the Coast, um, which are the license holder for Dungeons and Dragons. They they pitched them in 2014, following the release of the first Divinity Original Sins game. Um, but at that time, Wizards of the Coast felt like Larian was still too new of a studio, um, and they didn't want to mm. trust them with the Baldur's Gate franchise. So it wasn't until Wizards of the Coast saw pre-release footage of Divinity Original Sin two, uh, which came out in 2017 that they decided to follow up with Larian and ask if there was still interest at the studio to make a Baldur's Gate game. And of course, Larian accepted and the rest of history is history. Wow. So just interesting that Larian doesn't, didn't actually make the previous Baldur's Gate games. This is their first adding with Baldur's Gate. So that three is kind of a, a misnomer. I think while it continues the world, mm. the game is set like 150 years after the story of the previous games. It really can be a fresh start. Um, coming into the series. So if you're going to be intimidated by the game, be intimidated by the fact that you can spend 200 hours in it, not by the fact that there were two games before it that you maybe haven't played. Um, so then we have Starfield, and that is, uh, as billed by Bethesda, the first new universe in over 25 years from Bethesda Whoa. Game Studios. The award-winning creators of the Elder Scrolls V, <laughs> Skyrim, and Fallout 4 in this next-generation next generation role-playing game set among the stars. Create mm-hmm. any character you want and explore with unparalleled freedom as you embark on an epic journey to answer humanity's greatest mystery. Uh, Mm. Starfield is an action role-playing game. It's designed primarily to be played in first person. Uh, They do have the ability to change camera perspective. It's played in first person. Um, (laughs) That's how it works best. Uh, It released on Windows and Xbox Series X slash S at the beginning of September. And it's been probably one of the most anticipated launches of the year. Although overall reception has been way more mixed than with Baldur's Gate 3, it's still Mm. received mostly positive reviews currently at an 86 on OpenCritic. And it's been incredibly popular, uh, no doubt fueled by the fact that the game is available on Xbox Game Pass. It hit 1 million concurrent players by the first day of release. And Bethesda has uh, since shared that Starfield, as of September 19th, which was 13 days after release, um, that it had hit over 10 million total players. So big numbers. Wow. Uh, ultimately, the game seems to have lived up to the immense amount of pressure that must have been riding on it. Um, this is not just the first new universe in 25 years that Bethesda has created. Um, But also it's the first Bethesda Game Studios title to be released since Xbox bought Bethesda as part of the ZeniMax media purchase in 2021, which was a huge 
uh, I don't know, just like kind of ground altering purchase in the video game industry. So there's been yeah. a lot riding on this as kind of like, you know, seeing through that that purchase and whether or not it was worth it. And here they are and 10 million players uh, within the first 13 days is, yeah, it's a good, it's a good sign. So these are big fucking games. Uh, they're big in the sense that the games are actually quite large. Um, they're mega games to some degree. They're large mm. AAA developed games. Um, they have a shitload of players. There's a lot of money and energy and stakes riding on them. And they're also uh, big in the way they've like taken up a lot of space in the media landscape of the gaming industry. So and they also kind of came out very close in proximity to each other, and they're both RPGs, role-playing games. So we thought it'd be interesting to talk about them in comparison to one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, let's kind of start by breaking down how much we've each played of each of the games, uh, what we're playing on, and what kind of our high-level take is. Spencer has been primarily playing Baldur's Gate 3. I've played a bit of Baldur's Gate 3, but mostly I've been playing Starfield. And I don't think you've touched Starfield. Is that correct? <laughs> I had intentions to touch <laughs> okay. Starfield, but BG3 sucked me in. I get it. I get it. It's okay. <laughs> uh, so, Spencer, talk to me for a minute. How much yeah. of Baldur's Gate 3 have you played? How much time? What are you playing it on? Um, and then, yeah, your kind of high level take. It's complicated in terms of like, my playtime, I would, I have about 120 hours in terms of what's on my wow. PC. Here's the thing. I was a big dummy. And when the, it was like the first week that the game had come out um, on Steam, this was like back in August, I think, um, end of August, early September. And I was like, I saw that it was available in the PlayStation store. So I ran to my PS5 and bought Baldur's Gate 3. And then when I down when I completed the purchase, it was like countdown to download. And I was like, huh? And I realized that there was a bit of a delayed release for the PS5. So I ran back upstairs to my literally running PC. Literally literally. <laughs> Up the stairs. I could not wait another moment. I had to have this game immediately. Um And so, yeah, I ran back upstairs to my PC and downloaded it on Steam as well. So I started playing it on Steam. um, And I have to say, it looks beautiful on my computer. Um, Very much a, a, I mean, it felt retro to me as someone who doesn't play a ton of um, computer-based games. Um, Like a lot of the navigation is uh, through point and click. Like your mouse runs around the screen and, and you can sort of literally click on areas of the world and have your character navigate there. Um, very rich layered menu based. Um, so, I, so I sort of got used to that. Then the game came out on PS5 um, and my partner who had heard me talking about all of my sexy companions and illustrious adventures for the past two weeks. I believe was the term like, is prosexual. I believe, yeah, Jamie's new term that she's coined today, prosexual. <laughs> um, it's the professional version of horny, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is a professional fucking podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, my partner downloads it on PS5, and so I kind of started playing there too. Um, we we did a co-op run that we've uh, been jumping in and out of um he has his own game that he started four or five times just to kind of make tweaks to his character he's someone who likes to he loves the beginning of games i don't i can't really relate but 
he loves starting something and designing a character. Um, so it's mainly been a character sim for him. <laughs> uh, but we also have a co-op run where um, I actually didn't realize this, but at any point in Baldur's Gate, you can like turn on um, multiplayer mode and um, a player can join your party and it turns into a split screen game. Um, mm -hmm. But I really enjoy that even though it's split screen, uh, your characters aren't bound to each other in any way. Like you can both just start freely exploring the map. You can start like one person could trigger a cutscene. Um, so you might have a cutscene, a conversation cutscene playing on one side of the screen where someone else is exploring a different area on the other side. Wow. Um, and so it's been a kind of a cool way of, exp of exploring the game. Um, and especially in terms of replay value, like it's not like there's as much tedium of having to together at the same time find each companion, go through some of the uh, initial gameplay world building. Um, like it felt very efficient. Like I was mm -hmm. like, okay, I'll go find Lazel and uh, Gail, you go pick up um, Asterian and Will and we'll meet at this point. Um, so that. I think, you know, for people who are super into the role-playing aspect, um, it's supportive of that. Um, and for those who are more into the like, uh, just achievements and adventure and getting through the story. It's also supportive of that. Um, and it's really flexible in how you choose to play, whether solo or with a party. Um, so I, I really like that. Um, for me, this is my first, I would say, real D&D &D experience. Um, it's kind of funny. I don't talk about it too much, but there is only one podcast that I religiously listen to in terms of new episodes dropping every week, and I'm waiting for them. And that podcast is the McElroy's uh, The Adventure Zone, uh, mm. which is uh, Griffin, uh, Justin, and Travis McElroy uh, with their father, Clint, um, do a live play podcast that started out very much as kind of a humorous, um, like, parody of D&D, &D, but very quickly became um, something that's amassed a huge fan base. And uh, there, there's real rich storytelling and, and humor still at its heart built into it. Um, but I think that was really my first entry point to learning a bit more about the mechanics um, of, of these kinds of uh, role-playing games. Um, so they started out with, with literal Dungeons and Dragons and moved into some, some other variants of role-playing games. But, um, that for me was my entry point. And so, um, I've, I've never really been part of a campaign for more than like a one-off for like a day or a few hours. Um, so yeah, playing this game, um, like the familiar mechanics and, um, just sort of the, the, the endless choice involved, um, has been really, really cool. And I think I absolutely could see myself, um, you know, playing this outside of a video game format. Um, and so, yeah, I've, I've been, I've been really just, I've been loving it. Um, I, that's my high level take. Yes. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> Amazing. Um, but before I say more, um, tell us about Starfield. What <laughs> yeah. are you playing on? How much have you played? Sure. Uh, so I've played about 55, 56 hours of Starfield. I have not fully completed the main quest line. Uh, I'm like 75, 80% of the way through it based on, I just kind of like Googled a list of the quests and the main quest line. So I kind of have an idea of where I'm at. Hmm. Um, I've done several of the large side quest lines. I am playing it on Xbox Series 
S, right? <laughs> S is the smaller one. Like my brain is breaking right now. S is the smaller one, I believe. Yeah. Xbox Series X is right. like the big boy, the elite. Yeah. Um, I didn't want to. Yeah, I didn't want to invest that much in an Xbox because I've traditionally been a PlayStation player. That is where mm. I play most of my games and um, trophies have broken my brain and I like getting them. So <laughs> I know that most like games that come out, both platforms I'm going to play on PlayStation, but I wanted to get an Xbox as like a Game Pass machine to try out more things uh, via Game Pass. And it's been really good for that. And it's kind of wild that like, yeah, Starfield is on Game Pass. Um, I didn't have to pay anything extra to play it. They did what I think is a wow. fairly smart thing, although, I don't know, you could debate whether or not this is actually good for the industry. But they basically had, if you wanted to upgrade and pay like $30 for Starfield, if you were a Game Pass holder, it was like $30, and you got access to it almost a week early. Oh, wow. And so I did that. Nice. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about this as like an actual thing that the industry is doing. But like if th that feels like a pretty low stakes way to make more money on a game to me, it's mm -hmm. better than I prefer that to microtransactions. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, then it's it's an easy thing to say no to if you don't have the money for it. Like if you're just going to wait and play it on Game Pass or wait and play it the day it comes out. But other games have done this too, where it's like, oh, if you pre-order, you get a few days early with the game and stuff like this. And I don't know. I, yeah. I think there's positives and negatives to it, but I was willing to do that. $30 for Starfield, a game that I otherwise wasn't going to pay anything for. And I got it like four or five days early. Um, I was able to play it for an extra weekend. So anyway, I did that. Yeah. Um, my high level take of the game is mostly positive. I uh, my history with Bethesda and Bethesda Game Studios games. I played Skyrim, um, which was mentioned in that, that write up. This is from the Elder Scrolls Five Skyrim books. <laughs> um, I know Oblivion, the game before Skyrim, is also like really well regarded. Um, mm. That's the game before Skyrim in the Elder Scrolls series. And I tried to play Oblivion like a long time ago before I was like a real gamer, quote unquote, mm. and just kind of got lost and confused and, and dropped it. It's one of those like historical games that I'd love to go back to, but it's also so old at this point that it's hard to make time for it. But played Skyrim, absolutely loved Skyrim. I watched my partner play a good bit of Fallout 3 and some of Fallout New Vegas, which I know Fallout New Vegas was not developed by Bethesda, but still same world. I played Fallout 4 myself, and Fallout 4 didn't resonate as much for me personally, mm -hmm. um, mostly because of the world. Um, I don't know how much people know about these series, but Fallout is set in like this post-apocalyptic kind of wasteland landscape. Like, basically, we've nuked the fuck out of the planet, um, and now humans are, like, yeah. coming back up and resettling. Um, and I don't know, just in terms of plot and world design, Fallout hasn't didn't really appeal to me. Mm -hmm. um, plus, Fallout is also way more gun combat-based, and at least uh, through Fallout 4, that was really not Bethesda's strong suit. Mm. Um, even combat in Skyrim is kind of janky, <laughs> but there's so much other stuff to do in Skyrim, and I just love the fantasy setting. I yeah. love that you can become a werewolf. I love yeah. that you can go join the thieves. Like, There's so much cool stuff to find in Skyrim that the fact that actually doing combat is kind of not the funnest part. Secondary. Is, it's secondary, yeah. right? It's okay. <laughs> but with Fallout, when the world's not really grabbing me and the gunplay is just not good. Um, yeah, never, 
never really connected. So mm-hmm. I was definitely concerned about Starfield. Um, I know that I really prefer that fantasy setting that Bethesda did so well or does so well with the Elder Scrolls games. I wasn't sure I was going to feel about Starfield, which is this, as they say, NASA punk <laughs> aesthetic. Oh, God. <laughs> um, what do they think punk means? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. We, we had, I think we had this conversation on one of our bonus episodes. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know what they think punk means, but they call it NASA punk. I will respect that and say NASA punk aesthetic. But basically it just means it's it looks like a future that is achievable. It's like okay. if we moved, uh, I don't even know how far in advance this is set from where we're currently at, but in a couple hundred years, what might it look like for humanity to be spread out across the star systems? Mm. Um, and so the spaceships and stuff, I get what they're saying. They look like something that NASA could have designed, but more advanced. It's okay. the clean uh, white, metal panels and the kind of technicolor um accents and anyway punk is when neon (laughs) yeah i I don't i don't know man (laughs) it's like that's a whole ass conversation but anyway yeah so the game definitely has this it it feels kind of grounded it's a futuristic game that feels grounded in what we know about current humanity and feels like it could be achievable within a couple hundred years like this is potentially what it could look like when or if we start we were able to move out and start living on other planets and exploring space and what that might be Mm -hmm. like but a lot of that uh drive of the game really hinges on this idea of you as a person wanting to explore space like that is kind of like the main narrative uh your character gets wrapped up in with this group called constellation and Mm -hmm. they're kind of this like ragtag group of nerds who are interested in exploring the mysteries of space. Mm. Um, even though humanity has settled like big chunks of space, there's, you know, space is infinite. And so there's a lot still to be discovered and they're really interested in continuing to push the boundaries and see what's out there and solve the mysteries. And they found this like potentially alien artifact and they're trying to Ooh. figure out where it came from because within the world of Starfield, everyone is human. There are no aliens. Oh, cool. Okay. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of the thrust of the narrative and it's fine. I think we're going to get more deeply into this. Um, I think overall I'm positive on the game, mm. but I also don't know if I'm going to keep playing it and I haven't finished the story. Mm. So I think we'll get deeper into that and unpack it more later. But my high level take is, Good, not great. I have some issues. Okay. 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 Um, so let's start breaking these down um, more in talking about specifics of the games. Um, I was wondering if you want to start talking a bit about gameplay. Uh, you're kind of already talking a little bit about what it feels like to control Baldur's Gate, but what's mm-hmm. the actual, mm-hmm. actual like interaction with it look like what's it like to make decisions to do combat um and and the character creation which you alluded to which is a huge part of rpgs maybe we want to start there talking about character creation in both games because yeah a big part of a role-playing game is playing a role and i think uh something that's important to us especially as queer folks like RPGs are a way to explore identity. Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. they are that for anybody, but I think especially a lot of queer folks find it as like a really useful way to figure out parts of themselves or get to practice parts of their identity that they might be, they might have concerns about testing out in their real life. So, yeah. So let's talk sure. about character creation in Baldur's Gate. 
Yeah. Um, so, I mean, right away I was, I think it was you actually, Jamie, who was like, I was like, oh yeah, I just downloaded Baldur's Gate. And you were like, all right, get ready to spend the first three hours in the character creation. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's what and... I did anyway. I'm a little bit more of an Aaron though. Your partner, when you said that he keeps going back and remaking yeah. characters, like making characters is one of the most fun <laughs> things about an RPG for me. So I get that. It's the closest we get to godhood. Um, yeah. Yeah. I just, no, want to, yeah. I just want to touch the infant. <laughs> I um I mean yeah right away struck by just how much choice is baked into the game right from the very beginning with the character creation of course you are as as a D&D based role playing game you're choosing your race you're choosing your class um Within a race, there might also be sub races uh, like for example my first character um was a dwarf druid and within the dwarf race there was like um i think the one i was was a gold dwarf um there was there were like two other types that i'm forgetting the name of right now i think one was like a war hammer dwarf there was there was like depending on the choice um like maybe one was more nature aligned and one is more um like a artisan from an artisan guild um and so that might create different um affect your character specs um, in terms of like it's uh, your strength, charisma, dexterity, constitution, things like that. Um, I'll just, I'll go back to the character creation, but, but just to the way that um, this game has subverted when we talk about gameplay, um, you can have wildly different approaches to the game um, and, and have wildly different outcomes from the same interactions based on what those character stats may be. Um, like it didn't really strike me just how much variance there could be. Um, Cause I, I've always typically been someone who plays as a warrior type, like a fighter. I like to have magic. Um, and I'm typically someone who just melees my way out of a situation. If I can't talk my way out of it, my partner, uh, built his character as a rogue um, and so was very charismatic, very persuasive. And it is stunning to me, not just how much he's able to just talk himself out of situations and avoid combat completely in, in scenarios where I thought combat was always unavoidable, but also just able to like sneak around and use hiding and thievery to a point where like he just fast forwards through things that took me so many rounds of negotiating and fighting and so anyway just tons of of choice built into this game but but back to the character creator um incredibly inclusive uh which is always nice to see unfortunate that that still needs to be a call out in 2023 because the bar still remains so low um but still um right down to your character's genitals yes it's true you can um there's not even just like <laughs> one choice for the genital preference that you have. There are like different appearances within yep. that. Um, and so you, you're really free to create um, someone who doesn't just align with, with your vision uh, in terms of personality and stats and, and strengths and weaknesses, but also identity and, and having that be reflected down to um, seeing your own body type reflected on screen. And, and that is really, really cool. I think that was the beginning of what I felt was this queerness like built into the game. Um, I actually wanted to mention while we're here talking about character creation, um, 
this really nice article that I read um, by Aleem Karaj for Dazed Digital. And the, the article is called Baldur's Gate 3 colon, the queerest video game of all time. <laughs> um, and Aleem interviews uh, a few players um, as, as part of this article. And there was one... Um, quote I wanted to touch on um, from a player who asked to be uh, named as Chublot. Um, and they say, video games, RPGs especially, are about choice. Um, in other games, maybe I'll play a female character because the male character is hard-coded to be a certain way. But in this game, with so many options available to you by default, I'm free to create my character uninhibited. Um, and I think as a trans person, I absolutely relate to this feeling of like, I, I, I'm so used to spinning up a, a new game that I'm so excited to play where I'm able to create my own character and having a bit of that fall, a bit of that, uh, my chest sort of falling a bit when I realized that, oh, if I'm going to be the quote unquote male character, that means I'm going to be super buff and masculine and come off a certain way. Or if I'm going to be the quote unquote female character, I'm going to have this really high pitched and soft voice and the armor is going to look ridiculous. And uh, just like these little things uh, or, 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 you know, having they, them pronouns is not even an option in most cases. Um, and this is such a little thing in the grand scheme of of the experience you're going to have playing a game but it does mean something uh, there it, it, there is a joyfulness in in having in in feeling like your personhood your lived experience is considered in the game like i don't know how else to describe it, it it's a very amazing feeling to have that be respected and thought through and it makes me feel even more emotionally close to the game and to my character um and I just, you know, I, I felt this inherent uh, a queerness in Baldur's Gate, and I couldn't really put a finger on why. And it was interesting because I, I was reading about the game, um, and the world of the game is set in um, what's called the Forgotten Realms. Um, and there was a Canadian fantasy writer um, named Ed Greenwood, and he actually created the Forgotten Realms all the way back in the 1960s. Um, and he eventually actually sold the rights of this fantasy world he had created to the original publishers of Dungeons & Dragons, which was eventually uh, bought by Wizards of the Coast. And then now leading to this game, uh, they've, you know, asked Larian to develop Baldur's Gate 3. And so it's now set in this world of the Forgotten Realms. Um, and actually back in... Over the years, it's not even the first time that it's come up, um, but there have been times, most recently in 2016, um, where players of Dungeons & Dragons um, have pushed back on the inclusion of trans characters in the game, saying, like, it doesn't make sense in this world. Like, why are there trans people here? I don't want trans people in my fantasy world. And Ed Greenwood has actually come out and and publicly said... Um, this is a quote from uh, an interview uh, from roleplayersguild.com. Um, and he says, queerness has always been there and is an integral part of the realms. With that said, I've never met a gamer yet who doesn't tinker with every adventure to quote unquote, make it their own at their own gaming table. So, you know, if trans LGBT or sexual matters at all don't suit your tastes and needs in your gaming sessions, by all means, leave it out or change it. 
as we've said before, the the point of of D and D, it all comes down to choice. Um, and he goes on to say, but D and D has half orcs and half dragons and half elves, and has magic items that specifically change gender right there in the rules. Surely, if you could handle the basic notion of cross species sex, then having a full variety of gender roles should be something that doesn't blow your mind. Um, he later followed up on this on this quote and said um, that he. Uh, which was originally a blog post that he made. Um, and he says, I posted what I did in response to online gamer comments that claimed a trans character or lesbian or gay characters weren't in keeping with the lore of the realms and that there was no canon basis for them. That is bullshit because such characters have been in the setting since before D&D or any computer games existed. Yes, I created the realms in the mid-1960s before any role-playing games had been crafted. So no one misled me, and no one is muzzling or directing what I say or can't say, um, because that was the main argument was gamers were like, oh, like he's giving in to, you know, cancel culture or whatever the fuck and uh, the lgbtq awesome. agenda yeah the lgbtq agenda is making our games gay and making me making me gay for enjoying it um no it was pretty awesome <laughs> to, to have this creator come out and be like all the way back in the 60s i mm-hmm. you know this game has that this world that you're playing this game in in 2023 has always been this way and will always be this way and there's nothing you can fucking do about it so love that BG3 is queer. The gameplay <laughs> combat is turn-based. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's a um, party-based adventure. Um, so you're you're you have a party of four. You're navigating this this world. It's incredibly open-ended. You can choose to engage uh, with multiple multiple types of missions at a time. There is a main storyline. There's also tons of side quest content um even areas of the map that i'd spent you know over 50 hours in and thought i had explored every inch i'm seeing my partner encounter spaces uh even underground or above or caves and uh, areas of the map that i'd never even seen before with with a whole treasure trove of content that i had not yet experienced um so this game is absolutely rich with content um and it's uh in its in in moments of battle uh it's kind of switches into more of a top-down strategic turn-based um uh battle system um including you know weapons magic um uh like D D, uh you you have limited use of of things like spells. You have an, a limited number of spell slots um, that as you expend and actions that as you expend, you need to replenish. And so the game loop is sort of, um, you have a, your characters have a base camp. Um, you have two short rests per day, as well as one long rest um, where you are able to replenish uh, HP and, um, uh, spell slots and and action slots that have been used up in the course of the day. And so you're going out adventuring, um, taking moments of rest, uh, taking a long rest each night. Um, and, and in your camp is the space where you're really able to connect and build relationships with the people in your party. Um, so it's a mix of going out into the world, uh, managing your, your strength and resources, coming back and resting, getting to know your compatriots, maybe having sex with them, and then going back out the next day and doing it all over again. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> anyway, I've spoken a lot about uh, BG3 gameplay. Um, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I can start with uh, talking a bit about the character creator in Starfield. Yeah. I think the character creation in Starfield is actually pretty good and f- 
fairly inclusive. I have a couple issues with it, but overall, I think it does a pretty good job. Um, One of the things I was most impressed by was the body type selection. So this goes beyond, um, it does give you a relatively binary choice of basically whether or not you're going to have boobs and hips (laughs) or not. So like, there's one body type that has boobs and hips and there's one body type that doesn't. Um, And unfortunately, they did make the decision to, if you choose the body type that has boobs and hips, you can't have facial hair. Just a weird omission. I don't know how big, it's not not the hugest deal, but it's just weird. And it clearly Mm -hmm. like speaks to some like thinking that happened in the back end somewhere. And I just feel like uh, as someone who's played enough of Baldur's Gate to go through the character creator at least twice, like I just love that no, none of your choices in the Baldur's Gate 3 character creator are tied to any other choice. Mm. It's all independent. And I just think that's the direction we need to go. And so it's weird that they have that one limiting factor. Mm -hmm. Um, But the other thing that they give you on the body type uh, design thing is that it has a like a a circle, like a radial, and uh, almost like at three points in the circle, kind of like a triangle, if a triangle was overlaid on the circle. Um, One of the points is... uh, Shoot, I'm going to mess this up. One of them is like weight. One of them is muscle. And it's like muscle skinny and heavy Uh, or something like that. But then you're, you're moving a dot within the circle. So you can... What I think is cool is you can, first of all, design a heavier bodied character, which nice. is incredibly rare yes. um, in games. Usually you do just get that one or two body type choices. Even Baldur's Gate 3, I think, has like four body type choices per character. Yeah. Um, so you can be bigger, but you don't actually get to influence how big your character is. Yeah, that's true. Um, and what's cool, what I thought was cool was that you can make a character who's both fat and muscular, mm-hmm. which is like what uh, typically like a... a bodybuilder like world's strongest man contestants will have a belly but like beefy arms so yeah. i thought that was cool you can you can actually drag the little dot around the circle and kind of like find a body type that looks mm. like what you want your character to look like i thought that was pretty cool it's not like being muscular automatically means you're thin being mm-hmm. thin automatically means you're whatever like mm-hmm. it you can you can set that i thought that was a really cool um, body type setter. You also pick your gait. So that's separate oh, that's from cool. your body. So even if you pick a body, a lot of times in games, if you pick the body type that has boobs and hips, then you're going to walk with a little sachet. <laughs> there's like, it's a whole fucking thing that's been explored in games for yeah. a long time. But like, yeah. there's a way that game developers tend to make um, women walk in games um, or, or, you know, body types that are typically perceived as women in games. And uh, you get to pick your gait separate. So there's a gait that has a little more sachet in their step and there's a gate that's a bit more like shoulders like the movement is in the shoulders and you get to set that independently of what body type you choose um you do get to choose pronouns in the game they just have three options she her he him or they them um but that's solid uh one thing that was weird i did so i didn't specifically notice this until you actually mentioned it to me and then i saw some people commenting it on reddit they don't let you choose your character doesn't talk in the game Mm -hmm. but apparently they do make vocalizations um specifically when exerting themselves running Mm -hmm. getting shot um and you don't get to choose the voice that creates the vocalizations and it seems like there was some sort of issue where kind of like the most feminine highest pitched voice Mm -hmm. is tied to the they them pronouns yeah um i'm not quite sure what happened there and i i couldn't find anything online of like bethesda commenting on it but it's something people have noticed that honestly seems like a mistake Mm -hmm. and i'm not i'm not really sure what 
what happened there, but they should just let you choose your vocalization. Yeah. That shouldn't be automatically tied to anything in the game. So it seems, seems like another little oversight there. But overall, I think a pretty solid character creator. Lots of good good hair options that also felt pretty racially inclusive, um, cool. both with facial hair and with head hair. And yeah, yeah, pretty good, pretty good character creator. Um, something that's interesting for me, if I can be a little navel gazy for a second, mm. I please we love I, that here. <laughs> when I played Skyrim, and honestly, like with most games uh, that I would play growing up, where you get to design a character, I used to always design guys, like very masculine characters. Mm. And as I've gotten older and become more comfortable with myself, I noticed I've started designing like. Uh, mm-hmm. either women or non-binary characters more in games. Yeah. And I don't know, it was just something I noticed as I was doing the Starfield because my instinct when I started designing the character, I actually originally designed a guy with he, him pronouns. And I played for like, I don't know, 10 hours. And then what's cool in, in Starfield is you can, at any point in the game, go to, um, I can't remember the name, but there's basically like a, a shop that mm. you can go to that exists in most cities and pay 500 credits and just change anything about your character, oh, cool. including okay. your pronouns, your name. Um, you can it, basically everything except for your like background and starting traits. You mm. can change at one of these places. And so, yeah, about 10 hours of the game, I went in, changed my character design quite a bit, changed pronouns to they, them, and like continued to play the game that way. So I guess cool. canonically my character is trans. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I don't know. It's just an interesting thing I've noted, noticed about myself. I think it maybe it probably both has to do with um, early perceptions of feeling like video game main characters needed to mm. be strong masculine men because that's so much of what was presented in games. And also probably has a lot to do with like, my own shit around accepting like feeling more comfortable in my gender identity and like being okay expressing my feminine side through that yeah Uh, like not feeling like the only way to i I don't know i used to be really reject anything even remotely feminine which is weird because i was raised and thought for a long time that i was a cis woman and Mm then yeah i don't know so yeah no that's that's really cool. I lo- love that journey for you. <laughs> and also, yeah, like uh, just hearing you talk about that, um, I can relate a bit with with my own experiences. I think as a child, um, similarly, like as a younger person, even up to the past few years, like I would also always default to like a masculine, quote unquote, male character in my creation. And I think if I think back on it, it's like at that time, being put into the box of womanhood felt like a trap. And so games were the one place where I could express how I really wanted to see myself, even if I couldn't articulate that yet. And now that I've been out almost 10 years as a transmasculine person, even for me with Baldur's Gate 3, the characters I've designed have been women, which is kind of new for me. Um, and and it's been fun. Like I'm like it's almost like a fun way to play with some of the things that maybe I start to miss about the days when I was more femme presenting or or not even or just just it's weird to talk about as I think part of it's the the mainstream narratives around transness are so insistent on like we're in the wrong body and we we hate looking at ourselves in the mirror and we reject every aspect of the quote unquote opposite gender and 
for people for whom that is true, I absolutely respect that. Um, I think for me, it, it took a while. It was confusing because I was like, oh, to be trans, does that mean I have to completely reject the femininity that I came from. Um, so now the answer, of course, for me is is no. And games are a fun place to kind of like explore that and have fun with it a bit more. And so similarly, I do feel like I've I've allowed myself to kind of bring some of that energy back, and it's and it's been fun. Thanks, video games, for giving us a place to play. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so elaborating some more then on some on the Starfield gameplay. Yeah. Um, Oh, yeah. Like the final part of the character creator is that you pick some background traits and some like starting um, abilities. And those are those are actually like really cool. And and that's kind of like where the most like role playiness of the game, I feel like, has come in. Um, Obviously, you're the storyline of the game plays out the same for everyone. But like some things that I some options that you have to pick there, right? Like I chose to be a space scoundrel, which means I have a background of like doing like vaguely illegal things to get by, um, you know, like a Han Solo type, right? Mm -hmm. Like I think that's the classic space scoundrel character. Um, But and then I was raised on Neon, which is or in Neon, which is a um, one of the cities in the game. It's got kind of a reputation for being a bit of a like a pleasure house location. Mm. They've got a lot of gambling. Um, the criminal organizations kind of run the city between them and the corporations. There's not like a very strong government presence or, or police presence. It's like um, kind of dirty, uh, lots of neon definitely that kind of like futuristic Blade Runner vibes kind of a thing. Um, Lots of neon and neon, I realize I'm saying. Um, (laughs) But yeah, so I picked kind of that for my background. Um, But then I also chose that I'm an empath, which Mm. has the perk of like it unlocks special dialogue options for me. Um, But it also means that when I'm traveling with a companion, I get uh, like additional perks. Mm. Um, But they also have the option of you could choose to be an introvert and then you get perks for traveling alone and not traveling with a companion. Um, There's other stuff like you can choose your religion. There's like three different mm. main religions in the game. So you could choose to like align yourself with one of those right out of the oh, gate. That's cool. um, you can choose to have parents. Apparently, oh. if you choose the parents <laughs> trait, yeah. uh, there's just uh, a home where your parents live marked on your oh. map and you can go visit them. Uh, wow. <laughs> I've never tra- thought about that before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, I've listened to people talking about playing with that. And it's like the if you go visit the parents, like they're just like having a conversation. They're like this old married couple, like just <laughs> chatting or whatever and like complaining and they don't remember your birthday and then uh, you go to your job and they just show up and start asking questions and your coworkers are like why are your parents here oh. and like it's like a whole thing um, oh my god there's a trait to have like a, a number one fan and basically okay. there'll be an NPC who just like follows you around and oh, yeah, is <laughs> just like obsessed with you <laughs> uh, there's a trait to have your own mansion um, but if you choose that oh. option then you have weekly mortgage payments you have to make from the start of the game oh god uh so it's a lot of fun options in there that i have embarrassing space parents <laughs> Lindsay in the chat uh <laughs> yeah, <thanks. laughs> yeah very embarrassing um so yeah i don't know they have a lot of cool options there and it, uh, it's something that might be cool to play around with if i ever get to new game plus and to experiment with some of the other yeah the other options that they have but there's there's some fun stuff there so then you get into the game. Um, the It is action gameplay, which means like <laughs> shooting, shooting, uh, shooting guns. That's, that's the main way that you engage with combat. Um, but 
you can put uh, skill points into things kind of similar to Baldur's Gate. You can put skill points into things to avoid combat. So you can put skill points into stuff so that you're more sneaky and you pickpocket. Um, I personally like to play characters that have high persuasion stats. I like to talk my way out of situations and avoid combat that way. Uh, I don't love the persuasion mechanic in Starfield. I actually, it's so much better in Baldur's Gate. I don't, I don't know if you touched on this, but in Baldur's Gate, when you um, do something that's a skill check, it actually physically shows dice rolling on the screen. Um, mm, it shows you mm-hmm. like the way the game is calculating whether or not you're going to pass the skill check. In Starfield, when you persuade, there's a very strange little mini game that appears that is somehow influenced by your persuasion stat, but it's completely unclear how. You're given several dialogue options, um, and each dialogue option is tied to a number of blocks that you'll achieve when you, if you successfully use that dialogue option. And then mm. there's a meter at the bottom that shows how many blocks you need to fill in to be able to accurately, to adequately persuade the character you're talking to. And you have three chances to fill those blocks. Mm. It is, and, and there there'll be. If if it's only going to get you one or two blocks, it will probably be color coded green, meaning it's more likely to pass. If it's more blocks, uh, you know, three or four, it's going to be color coded like a yellow orange color. And if it's five or more, it's going to be color coded with red based on the mm. difficulty to clear that check. But what the sentences actually say seems to matter. I'm uncertain how they matter because I I can choose things that seem like they would actually convince the person I'm talking to, but that doesn't necessarily seem to correlate to whether or not the dialogue is actually going to influence the person. Like clearly on the back end somewhere there is a dice being rolled, but I don't see it. I don't understand how it's influencing my choices. And so it's just really confusing to know or have any sense of like what your chance of passing a persuasion check even mm. is. I really think it's, I don't know. It's unfortunate. It's just, yeah. they, they tried something new clearly there. Cause I, if I remember correctly, like in Skyrim and fallout, you would really just try the persuasion and based on your skill and something yeah. would happen in the background and then you would either pass it or not. They're trying to turn it into a more of a conversation and give you more interaction in that, but it's just completely unclear what is influencing my chances of passing the persuasion check at this point. Now my persuasion skill is just so high that I pretty much pass everything, but yeah. it's still weird and it was confusing for a long time. Mm. So, yeah. Um, so, uh, in addition to the action gameplay, you're also making dialogue decisions and narrative decisions. Most, uh, you know, the game is entirely quest based. So you pick up a quest line and you follow that through. Um, the quests, uh, almost all of them have multiple ways you can accomplish the given task in front of you. Sometimes that's really obvious and baked into the dialogue decisions and baked into what characters are telling you. Other times you could just decide to, uh, you know, you need a thing from a person. You could just go kill the person and take the thing off their dead body. Like it's not presented as an actual option, but it always is. It's always an option Hmm. that you could just do that. You may have to deal with consequences if you get caught, um, if you get caught stealing, if you get caught killing people. Uh, Most of the settled galaxy is patrolled by some version of police and they will come for you and lock you up. But if you can do it quietly enough, uh, you can get away with stuff like that, Um, which is all pretty typical for a Bethesda game. Um, the gunplay itself is really smooth, actually, oh, which okay. which was a big thing that I was impressed with. You know, I mentioned Fallout 
yeah. gunplay not being very fun at all. Gunplay in Starfield's pretty good. Like I actually enjoy uh, getting into combat encounters. I still try to avoid them with my high persuasion, but when I get into them, it's pretty fun. I've been running with pistols, and most of the pistols feel good to use um, and and fun to to run around and get into a shootout. So that's been surprisingly good. Um, there's certain areas of the game that capture capture like the magic of exploration that I feel like Skyrim did so well. You know, something with Skyrim is you could step out of a town into the open world and see a thing in the distance and like want to go check out that thing, right? Yeah. And so you go over there and then you find a thing and then it opens a quest line and then suddenly you're you're on a journey. Unfortunately, and this is one of my bigger issues with Starfield, I don't think they're able to capture that magic very often in this game because the game is so huge. Mm. There's so many planets that you can visit. There are certain areas, like when I'm in Neon City, that is a fucking cool looking area. And I want to go into all of the shops, into all of the nook mm. and crannies, see what there is to find there. But if I just go land on a planet, like if I go to Mars, like there's a building in front of me I can go in and I can turn around and there's nothing. And there okay. is nothing to compel me to go out there. And yeah. frankly, like for the vast majority of planets and open areas like that, it doesn't, the game is not designed for you to just run around mm. and see what there is to see. I don't think they intended for people to do that. If they did, they really didn't make a compelling case in most yeah. cases. And so this game has been way more of a, a waypoint game for me, a fast travel game. It's okay. just fast travel to the waypoint, do the thing, fast travel to the next waypoint, do the thing. And it's completely lost that magic of exploration and and like what really feels cool about an open world map that I yeah. that I think Bethesda has previously been really good at. Unfortunately, because of that barrier of having to get in your spaceship, go to the next place, um, which they make it really easy. You can usually fast travel for most planets right to the next planet. You don't even have to go run to your ship, go up into the air, do that oh, whole thing. Sick. Yeah, but you just you lose that ability to just look out. <laughs> And see what you might want to see. Mm. You can't even, this was really surprising to me. You can't get in your spaceship and just fly. You cannot? You cannot. When you get in your spaceship <laughs> and go up into space, you're basically locked in orbit around whatever planet you're around. And the only way to get to a different planet is to open your star map and essentially do a fast travel to the other planet. Oh. And the star map is a bitch to navigate. Like it's <laughs> it's arguably the worst designed thing in the game. You can't. It's so difficult. Like even like just trying to move the map around and figure out where I'm going. Mm -hmm. It's awful. And I haven't figured out. I don't think you can set like like quick. Like it'd be great if I could just like create a list of places I know I'm going to go to frequently and be able to quickly fast travel to those. But I don't mm -hmm. think you can. Like there's certain locations I want to be mm. able to go back to pretty easily and try, but don't have if they don't have a quest marker on them because if it's a quest marker i can get there through the quest menu that's a lot yeah. easier but if it doesn't have a quest marker on it it's just a place i want to go to sell something or buy something i have to try to navigate to it through the star map and holy fuck it's not not fun it's Sounds a bad, like it's a bad experience yeah <laughs> so unfortunately that has really kept the game from being as much like as engaging as i would want it to be because with skyrim yeah. man i lost myself mm -hmm. in just the running around the world and finding what there was to find mm -hmm. and there are great quest lines to find in starfield there have been some fantastic storylines that i've got myself into but 
it just, you get introduced to it in a completely different way. You don't find it yourself. Literally what happens is you walk into a town and you overhear someone saying something about a thing and then it adds a little marker in your quest log and then you can Uh. use that to track it down. But it's just, it's a completely different experience. I'm not Mm. organically finding the thing. I'm just getting it presented to me and then I can Mm -hmm. choose if I want to chase it down or not. And so that's, that's been a bit of a disappointment, but Mm -hmm. the actual minute to minute gameplay has been pretty solid. One more thing I'm going to harp on, or two yeah. more things I want to I want to mention. Lock picking in this game, amazing. Some of the best lock picking I've ever I've ever gotten to do in a game. It's this cool little mini game with these digi digi. They're called digipicks, and you're like hacking computers with them too. And it's this little cool. radial thing, and you're, yeah. you're it, it's really cool. You're like matching the the dials with each other. I always felt like in Skyrim they really made the lock picking some of yeah. the most enjoyable, uh, like tactile lockpicking experiences I can think of in games. So yeah, love to hear that. <laughs> similar with Starfield. Like really love the lockpicking. It's a lot of fun to do. Unfortunately, you have to put a skill point into it to be able to do it. Oh. And there's several things at the early game that skills that they just completely lock out to you if you don't put a skill mm. point in. You can't use your jetpack until you put it. You get a jetpack. You can't fucking use it until you put a skill a point into your jetpack. You don't know how to turn it on. Just I'm, like, I'm just a dude running around with a jetpack. I'm just like, yeah. I don't know how to use this thing. <laughs> Which I guess sort of makes sense, but it's just a weird barrier to put in front of people. You can't sneak. You can't pickpocket any of these things until you put a skill point into them. Um, and then the final thing that I'll complain about for a second, dog fighting in space. I don't enjoy oh, it. I finally okay. figured out how to do it and I'm okay at it, but it is weirdly hard. They give you all these like fiddly controls with your oh, spaceship no. that you've got to manage. And it's, yeah, I don't know. It's just not fun. And that's another thing where there's all these different things with your ship that you have to put skill points into to even be able to do it. Like piloting your ship being mm. able to lock on to targets. You have to put a skill mm. point into something to be able to lock on to targets. So until then, you're just like <laughs> shooting. <laughs> and you can't even use your missiles. Oh, it's, God. it's some weird choices around some of that stuff. Once you start to get the hang of it, it's okay, but it's just never great. It's never great. Yeah. Yeah. So let's move on to the next big aspect of these games, which is story, quest writing, themes. Mm. Yeah. How are you feeling about Baldur's Gate yeah, yeah. and the quest lines, the story, the main themes that you're encountering in the game? Yeah, like I honestly feel like um, the for someone who's not as familiar with the deep lore and world building of the Dungeons and Dragons franchise, I think Baldur's Gate at its onset might feel a little like you're mired in all of this history and 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 races and interactions that you may not understand. Um, there's a very high arching. I do think the the thrust of the story is is pretty easy to to latch onto and and sort of follow, which is that um, you have been mysteriously abducted and infected with a parasite um, that, in most normal cases, um, there's these creatures called mind flayers, and they parasitically infect people and that parasite eventually like uses that person as an incubator and bursts out alien style uh and transforms you into a monster um and so these characters they've been infected but they aren't changing um and so you're all banding together trying to figure out the mystery of what is going on with you as well as the rise uh, of this of this new cult around uh, a deity known as the Absolute, and that's kind of t- overtaking the land um, and, and influencing people. 
And so that all is going on, and that's fine. Um, I do think one of the aspects uh, that too might make the main story feel a bit disjointed is that because the the amount of choice is so uh, open ended. Um, I, I think one thing that the, the game does quite well is that it like the path seems to unfold intuitively in front of you where you're dropped into the game and you're allowed to go and do whatever you want. But I do feel like the way discoveries are set up and, and the characters you encounter on your path and the kind of, even if you're stepping into more of a side quest at first that might roll up into the main quest, um, it does feel like no matter what order you approach the first act, especially, um, things come together and make sense in a way that it doesn't feel particularly like there's huge story gaps, regardless of, of which encounters you're coming across first. So I do think for such a massive world, um, that's a pretty great achievement. I do think, um, for me, where the game shines the most is in the interactions with your companions. Um, each person has an incredibly rich backstory. Um, the voice acting and the emotiveness of the companions is like, I mean, cinematic level. So of, good. So good. So good. Yeah. I mean, each, uh, like just the, the voice acting alone is, is incredibly well done. Like I, I just really appreciate, like, I think for a game that's, you know, hundreds of hours, all of the dialogue involved. And then the fact that for most, um, you know, like game voice over recording situations, like you might be recording a bunch of scenes independently of each other, not even know how it's all going to knit together, or you might be recording pieces without having necessarily, um, someone like, in the room to respond and, and act against. And so I feel like it can sometimes be hard to hit the right emotional beats or know exactly how it should come off. And it, sometimes things can sound maybe a bit different than how it would really play out in real life, but they've nailed it. Like this game feels so cinematic and so immersive. I really feel like I know these characters and not only that, but I want to get to know them more. Like I'd rather spend time at camp just like, having more opportunities to talk and learn more about their, about their histories and, and about who they are than even, I'm like, I don't care about the fucking mission. Like, let's just get to know each other, you know? Let's just hang out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's hang out. <laughs> um, and, and on that, it's like their stories are, um, moving and, and, and emotionally rich. Um, there's, there's themes of trauma, um, of, uh, you know, religious indoctrinization of abusive relationships. Um, there's, uh, stuff around self-worth and, um, you know, like just very relatable human stories. Um, and so, you know, as much as it's a great uh, RPG, I think it's also an awesome dating sim that is hundreds of hours long. So um, again, regardless of how you choose to approach it, it does really have what I feel like something for everyone. Um, and, you know, I, I do think that the quests can sometimes feel a bit um, like they can they can drag on or, uh, or depending on, on how, how closely you decide, like 
like how diligent you decide to be about whether you're role playing or not. And I think there are some people who definitely approach it with the with a sense of like, well, let, let the dice fall where they may. Whatever role happens, happens. Even if that means, you know, because I rolled one number less than I should have, oh my God, suddenly a major character dies or like this really important interaction goes horribly and a whole town is massacred. Um like it's hard to live with that for me at least. So I'm someone who's definitely like it's definitely a game where you want to save, 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 um, and and make sure you're at least for me, like have the ability to kind of not go back over four hours of gameplay and like lose all that progress because of one terrible chance decision that was made. Um and I think as someone who who likes to play a lot of narrative games, like having something totally up to the roll of a die can sometimes be frustrating. Um, because it's like no matter how my character actually feels or, or, or the, the things that have led me here, it sometimes feels like the arbitrary number on the screen can just spell doom in a situation where up until then um, I, I've been strategic about building towards a certain outcome. Um, so I, I know that's the name of the game. So like um, I save a lot personally, and, and maybe that's seen as not being true to the spirit of, uh, uh, of D&D, but um, that works best for me. Um, so I do feel like sometimes, um, with the length of, of quests and particularly with the combat, um, sometimes things can feel tedious or you might not, you might be thrust into a situation where because of the roll of a die, suddenly everyone is attacking you. You don't really even know why they're attacking you. And it's not until you get through the battle that you're like, oh wait, maybe that would have been an, a good ally. I just didn't have enough context at the time to make a truly informed decision. Um, so some of that stuff can, can maybe create, uh, frustrating circumstances. Um, but again, like, uh, you can absolutely have a game with tons of, uh, flexibility and like you can save at any moment, which I really appreciate. Like even in a cutscene right before a roll, you can hit save right away and, and it'll load right there. Um, so there's, there's, there's a ton of flexibility in how you choose to approach it, which I think makes up for some of the more frustrating aspects of, of how the quests, um, uh, what's the word unfold. Um, but that being said, um, I do think like even though there's this larger plot going on, I, I feel like with the with the richness of the world to explore and the length of the game, that sort of gets lost in to me at least because I'm focused more on um, uncovering the map and and sort of moving through at my own pace. And it, it seems to be more about discovery for me and sort of understanding the world I'm in, but where I really feel like the writing shines is, is in those interactions. Um, but yeah, I, I could go on, but I want to make sure we have time to talk about Starfield too. So how do you feel about the writing and quest design? Uh, so I think the quest design um, and maybe like the line by line or like the overall writing of the quests is the strong suit of Bethesda Game Studios. And mm. I think it's a strong suit of Starfield, too. Mm. Um, there are some deeply engaging quest lines in this game. And, and what I really appreciate about Bethesda and how they do their quest design is how twisty the quest can be you get into something and you think it's going one way and suddenly you're on this epic journey that you never saw coming i mean like 
something as simple as you, you overhear a simple rumor about a mining company being short on jobs uh, to offer. So you track that down and three quests later, I'm embroiled in a plot to subvert an ineffectual corporate exec. I'm like pretending to be his secretary and hacking his computer and trying to get better working (laughs) conditions for the miners. And like, that's a, that's a quest line that I found myself on. There's like another one where, I flew into uh, United Colonies Airspace. They're one of the two major governments uh, in the game. And whenever you fly into a settled airspace, your ship gets scanned by basically the Mm. space cops that patrol that system. And you get scanned for contraband. I forgot I had just picked up some random contraband off a a random (laughs) base that I was exploring and was holding in my ship. So before I know it, I'm getting arrested by Uh. UC SysDef. And they bring me in and they tell me, hey, we've got you dead to rights. You're going to spend a shitload of time in prison unless you go undercover with the Crimson Fleet, which is like oh the big my. space pirate organization that exists. And they have like their own system that they patrol. And they're like, so if you go undercover with them and feed us information and evidence, we won't lock you up <laughs> for all this time. Oh and so you God. agree to do that. You go over and start pretending to be a space pirate. They're hunting for some mythological treasure that their leader from several decades ago left behind. And now you're embroiled in this big, huge plot to find this treasure. And you know what? The space pirates aren't so bad. So yeah. now I'm trying to decide if I'm going to keep uh, feeding evidence to the space cops or if I'm going to join the space pirates in the nice. end and help them get their treasure. Or if I want to just take the treasure and peace out and fuck both of them. Mm. It's that kind of stuff. like, And, and that's a long quest line. That was like a good six hours of gameplay, wow. like going through this long ass quest line. Um, so many fun characters that you meet throughout it. it that kind of stuff is really fucking cool. Um, yeah. On the flip side of that, there is a quality to Bethesda's games, uh, which if you've ever seen a video, um, I th- like people have mocked this online too, or do like, like, they pretend to be Bethesda NPC characters. There is a quality yes. to the way the characters behave and deliver their lines of dialogue that feels somewhat like an animatronic yes. <laughs> at like an amusement park. And because of that, it is never quite as immersive as it could potentially be. Mm-hmm. I think that that alone is not enough to make me not like the game or mm-hmm. think it's bad. But it is a stark difference in comparison to uh, Baldur's Gate 3. And even though that's doing a very similar thing where you like enter dialogue with a character and you get a closer, like shift, changed camera perspective, a more detailed view of the character, and they deliver their dialogue, that even that is completely different than the, than the way Starfield and Bethesda mm-hmm. do it. And there's a way that they just put the character right in the center of the screen, looking you dead in the eyes, yeah. like face not fully emoting, <laughs> body not really moving. Yeah. The voice acting is fine, but it's not, it's nothing, nothing like what you get in Baldur's Gate 3. And it yeah. doesn't have to be. I'm not saying it, it has to be, mm-hmm. but it does mean that it's just different. Like you don't connect with the characters in Bethesda games the same way that you might connect with a character in Baldur's Gate 3 or something else that I've been replaying recently because the DLC just came out, uh, Cyberpunk 2077. Mm. Like, I have lots of issues with Cyberpunk, but one thing that game does super fucking well is putting you in really immersive, engaging conversations with the NPC characters Mm. and feeling like you are in a scene as opposed to you're standing in front of a robot that's delivering a monologue. Mm. And some of this even comes down to the way NPC characters approach you. Like, I enjoy the companions that you have access to in Starfield, but sometimes the one that feels most realistic is the fucking robot. 
like Vasco, <laughs> the robot that, that you can travel with. Like he is a robot. He doesn't have emotions. He's not like a humanoid robot at all. And yet he also feels like the most fully realized and realistic character that you oh can God. travel with sometimes because he was because they all behave a little bit like robots. And for him, it actually fits. Yeah. Um, I, I like the side characters, but like traveling with Barrett, uh, who's one of the early companions that you get access to. And all of a sudden he's like, I've got I've got something I'd really like to give you. So I turn to talk to him. You get this slow, like delayed herky jerky. It focuses on him. He's like, you're like, okay, what do you want to give me, Barrett? He hands me a chicken tikka masala. He's like, I picked mm. this up for you. I think you'd really <laughs> like it. I'm like, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> and he's like interrupting this like tense moment that I'm having with some space pirate. And he's like, hey, I need to talk to you. <laughs> Give me this it's chick. urgent. It's urgent. It's, it's urgent. going bad soon. I need to give it to you. <laughs> it's just weird. It's just a little like it, and it's it's immersion breaking. It can be funny, yeah. but it's immersion breaking, and it makes the companion characters never quite feel human. Um, mm. There's some of them that are better than others. I think Barrett really did grow on me eventually, um, and he's got an interesting backstory. Like as you start to unlock their 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 individual like side quests, because as you travel with someone, it um, you know put basically is putting like invisible points in a meter to like increase your friendship with them. Mm-hmm. Um, there's I think four characters in the game that can be romanced. Uh, I believe Barrett is one of them. At least it gave me flirt options with Barrett. I don't know. All, and all the romanceable characters are like player sexual, so there's no like limitations mm. on who you can romance. Um, but like you know, he talks about his his husband who passed, who like died kind of tragically, and you help him like solve this mystery around his husband's death. And it's that's all. It's like really well written stuff. But I never quite buy Barrett as like a human yeah. person talking to me. Like, yeah, it's engaging on the level of like it is at its core, well-written and interesting, but I am not talking to this person and feeling a human connection with them. Mm. And that's just, I, I don't I don't know if, I don't think that's what Bethesda finds important about mm-hmm. the games they design. And that's okay. There can be lots of other stuff. Like what they do really well is that twisty, curvy, like I ended up in a situation I never thought I was going to end up in. I can go through space and I can join all of these different factions and get enmeshed in all these different uh, political entities. And I can, you know, be doing, I can smuggle like I literally with the yeah. space pirates, I can run smuggling runs. I can get a ship that has special cargo that hides things from the space cops. And I can literally be a space pirate and go steal things that like, that is what they excel at. But the actually like, I connected deeply with this character in my party. It's like, I enjoyed their story, but I didn't, I don't know if it, it doesn't go that extra mile. Um, yeah. And unfortunately that's for me, that's, that is important for me in games. And so it, it always just creates just like that little bit of disconnect and keeps me from being like a hundred percent engaged yeah. in the writing and storing. Uh, and what, Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I just, I, I was just going to say like hearing you talk about that. If I did have one complaint, about Baldur's Gate 3 that I think is standing out to me the most. It's that like I I do wish the world was a bit more penetrable. Mm. Like for the for the joy I get out of interacting with my characters in camp, I do feel like, like you talked about in the Neon City, like getting uh being able to go into all the shops and explore every inch of the map and and in the twisting quests, like having interactions that may unlock new paths forward and having all of this um nuance and and 
twisty past you can follow down. And I do feel like in a lot of ways, the, the Baldur's Gate 3 world feels very much like the stage upon which my interactions are unfolding. But it's like most of the chests I and boxes I break have nothing in them, or a lot of the buildings are empty. A lot of the um, like if I'm not at the right point in the quest, it's just like, it's not like I can have like meaningful, I can't like encounter a random NPC and necessarily like have like a super deep conversation. It's more about like the NPCs are there to help with world building. Um, and so like, I do feel like that kind of sense of exploration and, and the deep, deep, like quest, which, which builds up into world building that you get out of these Bethesda games, um, like there's that, the, there's that mystery inherent that I feel like, um, Baldur's Gate three achieves in, in the sense of uncovering the grander story, but I don't necessarily feel like I have the flexibility to totally create my own story, my own narrative, my own experience of the game. There's still a story being told that I am a player, a part of, and I do feel like sometimes the world feels more like just a vehicle for getting me through the story and less like its own living, breathing thing. Um, so I just wanted to comment on that in contrast, because I felt like um, it was interesting comparing the two and hearing you speak about your experience with uh, Starfield. Yeah, I mean, and that it's so specific, though, to the quest writing in Starfield, because there's it's really it's really like of a location like each location is pretty mm. distinct and unique and they each have their own vibes but when i go to like the first city that they have you go into the game like new atlantis it feels like a fucking ghost town mm. and the city is broken up into three sections that you have to fast travel between by taking this little like commuter train thing and so it doesn't <laughs> even feel connected yeah. to each other and it's so open and spread out and you have these people just kind of wandering around and this kind of comes back to that animatronic feel of the characters mm. too it's like there's a way that bethesda positions you as the player character as like you are this vessel that everyone is else in the world is so ready to dump they're mm. all their shit on like i am walking <laughs> past a guard at the gate and he's like yeah. did you know that da, 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 da? and i'm like but <laughs> but we don't even we're not even on a first name basis man yeah, yeah. why are you telling me about the problems you're having with the some alien thing out there and yeah then he finishes talking as i'm walking away and i get a little oh quest log notification you could go check that out mm. And so it just doesn't feel real. Like, mm -hmm. I didn't start that conversation. Like, it was literally just thrown at me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, I, I don't know. Like, what is immersive is, yeah, once I track down that rumor and suddenly I'm in an interesting quest, oh, great. Like, this is meaty, good stuff. But mm. the world does not compelling me to go find these things. It's kind of just happening to me. Mm. And then once I choose to engage with it, I usually feel rewarded by that. But... I don't feel like I'm finding the things to engage with. Does that yeah. make sense? No, that that <laughs> totally makes sense. And I do think there is some contrast there as well in the sense that like Baldur's Gate 3 is very much rewarding you for taking a chance and trying to investigate something mm -hmm. further, look deeper than what's on the surface. Really, you really feel like you have to earn people's trust, earn them confiding things in you. And so I absolutely, yeah. Totally, yeah, totally yeah. see that. The the other issue that I think Starfield has is that the main quest, for large chunks of it, is not compelling mm. at all. At least not for me. Mm. Um, but I think I think a lot of people would have will have trouble 
and, and have had trouble with the main quest line. Mm. You know, it's I think that's not uncommon with Bethesda games, too. I think it, it, from my recollection of Skyrim, like the main quest line was not the most interesting or best thing that I did in Skyrim, but it was good enough that I wanted to keep yeah. going with it. They really do. You know, they're trying to strike a balance because they want you to go out and explore and do other things and do all the beautiful side quests that they put in the game. But the main quest line still has to be at least somewhat interesting. And it, it what it really does is it, it commits this very quick sin of... You find the artifact, the alien artifact that I mentioned, um, and that kind of that brings you into the constellation group, and it sets you off on they are they're the holders of the main quest line, the constellation group, and the exploration of this alien artifact and what's going on with it. But what the constellation group quickly discovers, what you discover as part of them, is that there are more of these alien artifacts, and the main quest hmm. line, a big chunk of it, is just centered around collecting those alien artifacts and the quests to get the alien artifacts there are some that are distinct that are like hmm. this collector person has it so we've got to go try to figure out how to weasel it out of him or maybe it's going to be like a bit heist heisty and we're going to try to get it from this guy those are interesting but then there's like oh we found a signal for one it's just in a cave on this random planet <laughs> there are a lot that are like that and they yeah. are all identical Oh, God. identical okay. mm. and then the game introduces another collectathon aspect to the main quest i don't want to get spoilery but there becomes another thing that you need to collect as part of the main quest line and i've done like i've done six of the collections for this other quest line and they have been i'm not shitting you no variation in them at all it is exactly oh, the no. same thing every <laughs> single time it is go to planet yeah. Follow scanner signal. Oh, God. Go into building, do the same exact puzzle, get the thing. No variation. And I, I keep coming back to Skyrim because I love that fucking game. Mm -hmm. In some ways, I would compare this to getting the dragon shouts in mm. Skyrim. But you know what was cool about the fucking dragon shouts? First of all, you didn't always know you were going to find one. Yeah. Sometimes they would just be there. True. Uh, sometimes there would be a boss in front of them. Yeah. Sometimes it would be at the end of a long dungeon that was part of a different quest line. Yeah. And the dungeons were always fucking interesting to go through because you didn't know what was going to be every, around every twist and corner and you were finding cool loot and there was a story that you were piecing together as you moved through the dungeon and other quest lines were popping up. And like literally these fucking things that you're finding, it there's nothing. You walk in through mm. the main door of the building and the thing is there and you complete the same puzzle that you've completed four times before and you get the thing and you leave. And it's not mm. interesting <laughs> at yeah, all. Yeah. And so that's complete, it completely iced me on the main quest line. I powered through that. I got to the midpoint of the med, mid quest line or the midpoint of the main quest. Had the most interesting fucking quest in the entire game. It was so fucking cool. It was so cinematic. It was mm. emotional. There was like some shit that happened that like really left me like reeling. Like I got a little choked up. Like, oh my God. It was so cool. And yeah. then you get on the other side of the midpoint and they're like, okay, go collect more of the things. I'm <laughs> like, fuck, why are you doing this? <laughs> why are you doing this to me? I want to enjoy you. Yeah. So that's, I just, I don't understand. I don't, I don't quite know why they thought that would be a good thing to cram this like collect-a-thon mm. into the main quest. But that mm. unfortunately has been a huge disappointment mm. with the writing. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you, Spencer, do you feel like you're role-playing in Baldur's Gate 3? I think that I, honestly, I don't, 
I think I'm me in the game. You know, like yeah, that's I, I me think, too. Like I, it's hard for me to totally be like, okay, I'm gonna be a lawful neutral, and because I'm a dwarf, I'm gonna be like super. Uh, like I, I know that the, for for the dwarf race within the game, there's a lot of like pride and kind of like where you come from and taking care of your own. And so I, maybe I w- might be a little bit more um, understanding of a certain character's struggle, uh, trying to decide between like, do I protect my own or do I try to save everyone who might be affected and, and think outside of my own needs? Like I, it's hard for me to like be that strict with my role playing. I think if anything, I try to be as, um, like, I, I feel like I like to be the good guy, you know, like I, even when the choice is hard, I, I'm going to be like, it's the friends we made along the way. That's like the most important thing to me. And I'm going to try to save everyone. And I'm, and I, even when that's maybe impossible, I'm going to try to do the most, what I feel is the ethical or, um, yeah, most, most selfless or whatever solution. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't like playing God in that way where I'm like the most important character in the world. Um, even if y'all are NPCs, like I'm still going to try to go to bat for you. And so, um, no, I, I think, um, if anything, it's like when I was a Druid, there would be things like, oh, as a Druid, like I'm in touch with nature. So maybe I would sort of discourage things that would harm animals or the natural world. Uh, but that's pretty much the extent, like, I don't, I resist any sort of indoctrination, indoctrination or, or dogma. And so like anything having to do with a certain religion or a certain like political affiliation or anything like that, I'm like, nah. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I don't know. Are you role playing? (laughs) Not, not, not a lot. No. Um, I think like I have my head cannon for what, because, you know, I chose that background of like a space scoundrel, but mostly, yeah, I'm just playing a version of myself. Right. And like infusing my own politics into my decisions and stuff too. And like mostly, even though my character was a space scoundrel who had this kind of rough upbringing, like my head cannon is like, they, you know, they're kind of reformed at the beginning of the game. You're working as a miner um, on a random planet. And that's how you get, you, f- you find that artifact and that's how you get discovered by constellation and roped into that. So I'm kind of like a reformed uh, like criminal, but also I'm still like, I don't trust cops. I don't, yeah. you know, if cops ask me to do things, I try to avoid doing them. Totally. I don't mind helping out a criminal if they're not hurting anybody, um, you know, victimless crimes and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and like, there was a really cool quest line in neon where uh, I felt like, with my headcanon of being like from neon, um, you can kind of help um, some of the smaller business owners almost like form like a union of small business owners Mm, to help push back against some of the, they're having trouble with some of the gangs, but they're also feeling pressured from the larger corporations in the area. And so you can help them like basically create a a community among themselves to help push back on Mm. some of that stuff and stop uh, basically like paying protection money to some of the gangs if they all stand together and do it. And, you can you can help them achieve that so 
like yes and no. It's like I feel like I'm playing a character, but that character is basically a, a reflection of the stuff that's important to me. And yeah. I, but I think for the most part, the game has allowed me to make decisions that feel in alignment with that, and I haven't felt like I'm being pushed in one direction or another. Yeah. Um, despite there being a lot of quests to become a space cop, like there's a lot of opportunities to become and or help space cops in the game <laughs> and like join up with the their government. So that's interesting. And your companions um are pretty pro space cops. What so, the hell? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Two hundred years in the future, the punk is when you help the space cops. Yeah. Yep. NASA <laughs> punk. Just keep that in mind. Um. Are you going to keep playing Baldur's Gate 3? You said you've got over yeah. 100 hours in. Your partner's still going, yeah? Oh, yeah. I think so. I mean, I still have another act of the game to get through. And so um, I definitely feel like there's a lot keeping me in. Um, you know, even if that's just more steamy <laughs> steaminess to unlock. Um, <laughs> it's funny because I'm like, I'm pretty asexual in my day-to-day life, but like for some reason this game, uh, <laughs> one of my favorite things is the Baldur's Gate 3 um, subreddit. Every week, multiple times a week, there's at least a dozen posts being like, um, did anyone else start this game thinking they were like super straight? And then the longer you play, the more you realize, like, actually, <laughs> I have three husbands and they're all named Asterian and Halson. And also I'm unnaturally into bears. Um, no, but like for real, it's like uh, one of the things I enjoy the most is the way that this game Again, I think that comes back to the compellingness of of those companion characters. It's like awakening something in a lot of people, and it's very <laughs> enjoyable to watch. That's um, great. Uh, people who so you know, it does are have like, a gay agenda. Yeah, it does. And honestly, we're here for it. Um, so yeah, it, it's the characters really that 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 keep bringing me back over and over. Um, like I, I like I said before, I think some of the the fighting and, and exploration sequences can get kind of repetitive. Um, but this is like a really special game with, with so many different outcomes, even in the same situation. Um, that's pretty wild to witness, especially watching someone else with a totally different type of uh, character play it. Um, the replay value is immense. Um, and for a game this this large too, just in general, in terms of the, the map and, and everything to explore, I mean, definitely value for the money and something that I would come back to again and again. Um, I do, it does remind me of Skyrim in that way and that like, I can't get enough of it, even if some of the things about it get old after a while. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know yet what my path forward with Starfield is going yeah. to be. I thought I was done for it with it for like the last week. And then yesterday randomly got an urge to go back to it and started another big quest line and have been pretty invested in that. Um, I'm also enjoying a lot the companion character that I'm currently traveling with. Um, she's one of the more interesting characters in the game that you meet named uh, Andreja. And she's like got a more mysterious past. She's not... What the main thing I like about her is she's not an open book. Like we didn't meet and she didn't immediately go, here's my entire heart and everything you need to know about me on a platter. Mm-hmm. She's like way more cagey. Um, she also, when she, uh, your, your companion character will like interject in conversations that you're having. And, uh, when I was traveling with Barrett, a lot of times the interjection would be like, he's talking to, he's like participating in the conversation that we're having. Um, 
and just like further coloring that in. When Andresia interjects, it tends to be in way more of like a protective manner against mm-hmm. me. Like someone else will comment and they'll be like undercutting like me or thinking I can't do a thing. And she'll be like, you better watch who you're talking. Like <laughs> she's like just way more like she feels more like she's a friend and companion and actually like Bestie. supporting me. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I'm, I'm enjoying that aspect of it. So I wouldn't say I'm totally done yet. I really don't know if I'm going to have the gumption to do more of the collection yeah. missions to actually finish the story. And I feel like I can see where the story is going at this point. Like one of the big mysteries was kind of unveiled at the midpoint. And it's all kind of building towards the end and then the rollover into New Game Plus. And okay. I just don't, I don't have the stamina to New Game Plus this game. Yeah. I already yeah. know that. And yeah. so I don't know how much I need to push through to the end of the main story versus just keep exploring quest lines that interest me until nothing does yeah. anymore and then let it peter out. So that's kind of where I'm at with this. Um, but I think, especially if you have Game Pass, I think this is, I think people should check Starfield out. Um, I think if if you're like me and you really love Skyrim, I don't know if Starfield's going to work for you. Mm. It kind of depends. Like, are you enticed by the setting? Mm. Um, I think there's a lot that Skyrim does better than Starfield. Mm. And I really hope that, uh, you know, they're, they're working next on the next Elder Scrolls game, Elder Scrolls six. And I hope that by grounding it, the game back in a map that can be explored, all in one go that feels like a cohesive world <laughs> that it might uh, actually help with some of these issues that mm. I've had with Starfield. But, you know, I don't know. There is still something like magic about the way Bethesda does quest design um, and the mm. way they create a space for you to really a world for you to get in there and do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And I think that persists. And so if that is of interest, then yeah, definitely check Starfield out, especially if you have Game Pass. I think there's no reason not to. But Oh, yeah, no brainer. But it's definitely not the, you know, I, I was chuckling back at the beginning of the episode when I was reading the description from Bethesda and saying this was, uh, hold on, let me find it again, the um, the next generation role-playing game. Oh, God. <laughs> I don't know if this is it, actually. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I don't know if it's that, um, but it's it's pretty cool. It's a generation. Cool. It's it's a generation. Um, <laughs> before I fully close this out on this topic, uh, I wanted to take a second to talk a little bit about uh, this. Is actually coming from some discourse, discourse, capital D a discourse, that was happening around Baldur's Gate uh, three specifically, um, but kind of just this idea of the quote unquote mega game and mm. what this means for the video game landscape and industry. Um, So shortly before the 1.0 release of Baldur's Gate 3 uh, earlier this summer, there were a lot of players and media like really touting Baldur's Gate 3 as this quote unquote new standard for RPGs. And that uh, resulted in some game developers actually going on social media and starting to talk about and highlight like why that kind of framing of big, huge AAA games like this, these mega games, it, why that type of framing can be really problematic. Um, like what that kind of rhetoric, like the impact that kind of rhetoric can have on the industry. And most notably, um, one of the loudest voices in this conversation or one of the ones that <laughs> maybe drew the most ire, I don't mm-hmm. think he meant it that loud, but it definitely got a lot of attention, um, was uh, Zalavir Nelson Jr., who is the studio head of Strange Scaffold. Um, these are the folks who made Hypnospace Outlaw 
And they actually just had a, a new game drop called El Paso Elsewhere. Um, but he had a really good uh, thread on X that was intended uh, to praise what Larian accomplished. But he was also trying to point out like the very specific circumstances that that Larian was able to work within that allowed them to accomplish this. And his thread got picked up, um, I think, really disingenuously by IGN. Um, it got turned into a video that tried to make it sound like Baldur's Gate 3 was causing developers to panic and really just kind of became a lightning rod for mm. a lot of uh, capital G gamers and um, some media pundits to bag on lazy devs who don't want to make their games be not broken and not have mm-hmm. microtransactions when none of that was really what the conversation was about. So I, I just I wanted to close us out on this conversation about these two huge games, um, and in particular Baldur's Gate 3, which has been such a huge success, um, by reading through the tweet thread uh, that Zalavir posted, um, because I think he makes some really interesting points about how we should contextualize these types of games moving forward. So here's the here's the thread from Zalavir, and he is at Rit Nelson on Twitter. That's W-R-I-T Nelson. Uh, If you want to look him up and follow him, he's a really interesting person, uh, says a lot of really smart, interesting things. Um, And he's also been on the Remap Remap Radio podcast a couple of times, too. Mm. uh, So you can catch him there. Um, But here's a tweet thread. Um, And this is from back in July. He says, uh, like a lot of people, I'm deeply excited about what the lovely folks at Larian accomplished with Baldur's Gate 3. But I want to gently, preemptively push back against players taking that excitement and using it to apply criticism or a, quote, raised standard to RPGs going forward. You can't separate a game from the process used to build it, so let's look at what Larian is taking into the development and final version of this game. One, dev cycle stretching back to 2017. Two, two massive games and their definitive editions worth of tech and institutional to draw from. That's He's referring to the Divinity Original Sin games. Three, super successful early access period lasting three years. I think mm-hmm. that's really important to understand. The first act of Baldur's Gate 3 was in early access for three years. Um, And he goes on to say, uh, providing crucial community feedback, bug hunting, and cash flow. Four, over 400 developers in seven different offices around the world, not including their outsourcing partners. Five, the license, brand, and world of one of the largest entertainment IPs in the world, D&D, at the apex of its popularity with the rise of the actual play movement and a movie. Mm. This is a small, incomplete list. Larian is coming into this game swinging with a gigantic weight of expectation to deal with, but they're also doing it with an immense amount of wind. And in parentheses, he says direct experience plus resources plus specialty tooling plus 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 etc. at their backs. As a TLDR, in an era of mega games, Baldur's Gate 3 is one of the largest attempted, built by a specialized group of people using mature tech, specially built to make this specific game, reinforced by invaluable mass player feedback and market validation ahead of its launch. This is not a new baseline for RPGs. This is an anomaly. Trying to do the same thing in the same way, especially without the same advantages, could kill an entire group of studios. If they go as big or bigger with their next title, Larian themselves could die. That's the risk and reward of mega games. We are an industry dangling elephants over cliffs, 
pointing at the ones that don't collapse under their own weight as indictments to the ones that do. I think that's such a great fucking quote. He finishes by saying, so please celebrate the achievement represented by Baldur's Gate 3. It looks like a massive amount of effort is about to pay off in a big way for one of the brightest voices in the medium. But if you shout that every RPG should be like this going forward, you have no excuse. You've not just missed the point. You've created the expectations and conditions to ensure your favorite creators may never be able to give you the thing you love ever again. Mm. So period. Yeah. I, I just, he's gone on with, uh, with some, uh, TikTok videos and stuff really elaborating to like the impact these kind of games can have like the, almost the chilling effect actually, like that this hat will have on the way funding comes through for RPGs moving forward because funders, We'll look at this and say, if it's not going to be the next Baldur's Gate 3, I'm not going to fund it. And that actually like really dries up innovation. Yeah. It removes space for smaller studios to try to accomplish things. And it also set, makes studios set unrealistic expectations of themselves and unrealistic expectations for funders to actually try to get the funding that they need to make the game. So... I love big games like this. You, lo- We love big games like this. Yeah. But it's important to remember that there needs to be space for all of it in the industry. Yeah. Um, to some extent, we as players are not going to have the most impact on this. There will be an impact on the funding side of what gets made moving forward, even, like without us having any say on that. But I thought what he was saying was really interesting and important. And I yeah. think uh, it's helpful to keep in mind that when a game comes out broken or smaller or not as perfect as Baldur's Gate 3, it's not because the devs are lazy or because they didn't want to accomplish that. I, there's so many things that go into these games and so much behind the scenes stuff um, that happens. And and there was so much about Baldur's Gate 3 that was specific to that development and what they were able to accomplish. It is not, it can't be a new standard because they had all of those resources. That's all of sure. highlighting. For sure. Yeah, 100%. I mean, one of the most beautiful aspects of the gaming industry is that it feels like one of the final frontiers where it doesn't matter how much funding or prestige you have. Like, you could be just a team of of one or, or two people who in their spare time built something they thought people they loved and released it and it caught fire mm-hmm. uh, like you know you don't see that in film you don't see that in tv you don't see that with books like you really i mean i think the age of the internet has certain there have been some success stories with self-published work that that reach that reach millions um but i feel like the gaming industry is still like one of those places where year over year we play dozens of games that are from people we've never heard of and um it still manages to be a place that's collaborative and and open to to input from both ends of uh of that um like unknown to wildly popular um, bar. And so I, I want to preserve that because that's where real creativity and innovation comes from. So yeah, I don't need to say anymore. Just, yes. yeah. Yeah. But and what I think is scary is that the writing is on the wall and, and developers like Salavir and, and others, I know Rami Ishmael has, has tweeted in this vein as well, but like what they are seeing from funders as them as, as studio heads, the, the drying up that's starting to happen with the way funders approach games and what they're willing to fund is unfortunately starting to show some writing on the wall that the video game industry is starting to go down those same paths that we've seen other media go down before them. And it's, uh, I don't know. It's unfortunate because not every game can be Fortnite or it can be Baldur's Gate 3. And when we 
when funders and the money people behind these games are constantly trying to set that bar higher and higher and higher and saying that's the only thing that equals success, that's when you get this shit like we see happening all throughout the tech industry, but in the video game industry as well, which is studios getting closed for not hitting success metrics that are by and large just based on the idea of infinite growth Mm. that's not attainable. And these money folks are not willing to say like, you know what, that's enough. Like if we make this much, it's enough and we don't actually need to set the bar higher. And I don't know, it's scary. Capitalism is scary. (laughs) So on that note, (laughs) it's time uh, to wrap up today's session of Pixel Therapy. Thank you for tuning in. And we hope that listening to our thoughts and feelings gave you some thoughts and feelings of your own. If you want more Pixel Therapy, come check us out at patreon.com slash pixel therapy pod where you can snag that monthly bonus episode for just $2 a month. If you're not up for contributing monetarily, but you enjoyed this episode, you can show your support for free by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts and following us on social media at Pixel Therapy Pod. That stuff is just as important, and we appreciate it just as much. And you can keep up with all this stuff and more by visiting our website at pixeltherapypod.com. Finally, since we like to put our money and our energy where our mouth is, we end every episode with a recommended side quest. Um, Did you know that the five-day work week in the U.S. was established in October? I didn't. Uh, So this week, we want to let you know about Massachusetts Jobs with Justice, a coalition of community, faith, and labor groups in the Massachusetts uh, area, organizing working people and allies to fight for the rights of all workers locally, nationally, and internationally. Um, jobs with Justice, their mission is to defend working people's standard of living, fight for job security, protect our right to organize and support contract campaigns and strikes. Um, so you can donate and get involved at massjwj.net. Thank you for that side quest, Spencer. That is our show for today. So go forth, run a story mission, level up some stats, and don't forget to hug an NPC every now and then. Don't. Don't. We'll be back soon with some more Pixel Pixel Therapy. Therapy. Bye-bye. 